0: Hello and welcome to the Systematic Understanding of Everything, an Exalted podcast. This show is a collaborative effort between members of The Story Told, Bonus Experience, and Mage the Podcast. We're going to break down the basics of Exalted from its rules to its setting. I'm Chaz, Exalted writer and fan.
1: And I'm Monica, Exalted 3rd Edition Supplement Developer and Lead Mechanical Developer for Exalted Essence.
2: I'm Terry, producer for the show, and I don't have a witty statement about the South because it seems like a neat area full of interesting people with a cool backstory, and I look forward to talking about it. This is episode
0: 23, Smoke Ascends to Heaven. Today, we're going to continue our tour with a look at the South of Creation.
2: What is the elemental or narrative theme to the South of Creation, and how is it expressed? The
0: elemental pole of fire is the dominant pole of the south, and that makes the region hot. Uh, The climate ranges from Mediterranean uh, along the northern coast to the savannas we mentioned near the Dreaming Sea a few episodes ago, and the coastal jungles we'll talk about when we get to the southwest a few episodes from now. But the bulk of the south proper is hot, arid desert and rocky mountains, uh, in many cases volcanic. The boundary with the wild suffers weird firestorms that sweep over the region and rivers of molten glass.
1: The South is a land of wealth and tyranny. The region is rich in natural resources, but those sources of bounty are tightly controlled by the few, which sets up for all kinds of interesting plot lines about economic inequality.
2: It seems like every direction of creation is rich in resources in some way. Is this a special kind of rich or do we get to that later? In some cases, yes, this is a special kind of wretch. Okay, got it. So as opposed to it just being useful things, it's like, we pulled money out of the ground or something like that. <laughs> the, that city's called Gem. Okay. Well, <laughs> sometimes Exalted is great for telling you what's in it right on the tin. Uh, so what are the key geographical features of the south towards the elemental pole fire? The northern coast hosts large cities, mostly allies or subjects of the realm.
0: This region is the most agriculturally productive, so also supports the highest population density. The central region of the south, called the Burning Sands on the map, is an arid arid desert presented much like the Sahara, though 3rd edition seems to have softened the harshness much like it did in the north to make room for more peoples in this region beyond the coast.
1: The south is separated from the east and the scavenger lands by a series of freshwater lakes added to the map for 3rd edition, and as we've discussed in previous episodes, I am a big fan of 3rd edition adding water to this fucking map. (laughs) It helps. (laughs) Yeah, Mountains flank the south proper in both the east and the west, which makes the region we're talking about today really clear.
0: I I think I can say this on air, uh, but I had a delightful conversation about what the weather around those lakes might be like based on how we expect the uh, wind direction to be moving in creation. So I don't think that will ever see text, but it was fun to talk about. (laughs) What are the key cities and cultures in the south? Chiaroscuro is the largest city in the South, and one of the largest in creation. It's built on First Age ruins that were a a city of red glass towers that softly glow with power. It's nominally a satrapy of the realm, and also a major trade port, so that leaves it very cosmopolitan. The city is supposed to be a post-apocalyptic megacity. There are things like a series of tunnels with platforms, uh, clearly a subway from our modern eye, beneath it. Some of the towers have amenities like lights running water and lifts. You can put other modern lookalikes into the city as well, and they won't be out of place. This is where the post-post-apocalypse is really clear in creation. Uh, The red glass is irreplaceable, but savants have figured out how to reshape it, uh, making blades and other tools from the shards of the shattered buildings. Uh, Stretches of the city uh, remain in ruins, uninhabited, potentially hiding lost treasures, or shadowlands full of angry contagion ghosts.
1: The Delzon nomads took over the city from petty warlords centuries ago and restored it to a thriving center of trade. Uh, They are a kind of blend of pre-Islamic Arabs and Central Asian steppe empires. So they've always been presented with strict gender divisions, but with some of the usual assumptions turned over. Uh, For example, men wear veils that declare their deeds and the deeds of their ancestors in embroidery, uh, and women are the typical scholars and other intellectuals of their society. They also have one of the explicitly trans groups in creation called the Dereth. Anyone can take on the trappings of, of the other gender and their society roles, and to the Delzon, they are, of course, that gender, no questions asked, even to the point of violent or angry defense when outsiders misgender them, which is kind of cool but we'll get to that. Kuroskuro is nominally a satrapy, but the Delzon leaders keep the realm at arm's length with canny negotiation and general tribute. Kuroskuro and the Delzon used to have a lunar patron, Tammuz, but like the Hislani and the, the Chantons, third edition has stepped back away from the strong lunar control in second edition. So <laughs> I think it's weird to go, we have strict gender divide, and then also be like, but it's flexible. <laughs> And at least in the core presentation of them, it's still like the women are favored for their appearances, which I seem to recall there being a behind-the-scenes discussion about being like, get rid of that fucking line when you do this in, 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 across the eight directions. Like, for God's sake, please. We fixed it, um, we fixed the it other... in
0: essence also.
1: Yes, we did. <laughs> Furthermore, when you create... A society with a strict binary, even if people can move freely between them, it erases the possibility of a non-binary identity, which is messed up. And so the fact that it doesn't acknowledge that, spends some time talking about how women are still favored for their appearance, and then makes the trans people also still sort of other as they're their own category of thing, as opposed to just being, like, permitted to change Their gender presentation at will uh, is clearly a piece of original setting writing that was not written by a non-binary person, trans person, or a woman. Just
0: it's it is probably worth noting that I think this was originally written in like 2002. Yeah. Um, it was. And by 2002 <laughs> RPG standards, like
1: oh, I like when this came out, like with the first part, a first edition. It was incredible. It was super progressive for 2002.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's a ways to go. It's now
1: 2021.
0: The Varang city-states are a collection of cities united by a shared culture of celestial order, determining caste and rank. Streets in these cities are organized with geometric precision to represent the stars. Uh, The Varangians are known for building masterful clockwork devices, in in part to calculate the movements of the heavens, Uh, but they build other devices as well. Urim, which appears on the map in 3rd edition, is called the Peacock City, since they revere the constellation of the peacock and decorate their city with lamps that resemble the peacock's colors. There's also a weird place for foreign characters in Varangia, because there's this bit that's been in since 1st edition that Varangians are unwilling to ask each other to kind of step out of bounds, but since foreigners don't have a caste or assigned role, it's more acceptable to ask them to do illegal things. So that's kind of interesting uh, to, to bring characters into this, into this region.
1: Harborhead is the sacred kingdom of Alat, who we are going to talk about a little bit later, uh, the southern god of war and cattle. The god's influence is apparent in the customs of the people who make up the kingdom. Peoples in the capital, uh, Kyragast, mix freely but remain divided in the countryside. Harborhead seethes after centuries of overlordship by the realm, um, but House Cathach is unlikely to withdraw from the satrapy given the wealth of jade.
0: Harborhead is another one where we're going to have to put on our critical hats and call out (laughs) some problematic presentation. And a lot of it in past editions was problematic. So I think the number one thing is that previously harborhead was the only clearly sub-saharan africa inspired place in creation and the central narratives were colonialism tribalism and slavery not a good look the third edition core book also hasn't done much to address it so even in third edition harborhead's presentation is is a problem so be careful using it as is third edition is going to be clear about uh, Sub-Saharan African inspiration for other places, and we'll mention that as we go down the, uh, the list here.
1: The Askari clans are newly presented in Fangs at the Gate. They are nomadic descendants of a people who resisted the realm and united their neighbors to fight back their home city was raised as a show of force to subdue the others. They range the Savannah and the desert west of the Summer Mountains, south of Verengia. The lunar smiling Zemisha has woven herself into their culture as an avenging spirit to forge the Askari into a weapon against the realm in their quest to reform their lost home city. The Askari are matrilineal and polyandrous with a woman's junior husband expect- expected to take care of household duties. Uh, Fangs at the Gate gives details for the seven clans and their tutelary gods.
0: And they ride birds. Rad. <laughs> Yep, chocobo-like riding birds, not, not flying ones. But Gem is a far southern city built in the caverns beneath an extinct volcano. The city is ruled by a hereditary despot who leases monopolies to the various families of the city, which ennobles them as long as they continue to pay the lease. The most valuable monopoly, that of the eponymous gems mined beneath the city, is always held personally by the despot. Meaning all trade in gemstones has to pass through the despot's coffers. Uh, third edition has made Gem an imperial power, with the Kani despot Rankar VII also being the war chief of the Sabaki tribes and the suzerain of the Tsavo cities. Uh, the Tsavo cities are listed in the core book as Kandara of the Great Library, Origin, the city of talking lions, and Demon Haunted Scarth and while this hasn't been detailed yet in published material uh, gem and these locations take their inspiration from sub-saharan africa so that's cool
1: paragon is as far as i remember a a location is a a city uh it is ruled by a person titled the the perfect who i seem to recall in first edition at least as a mystery and in second edition of course we gave him (laughs) i think it was him stats uh, still a mystery has... but we have
2: a stat block for the mystery
1: <laughs> we have a stat block for mystery the two, second edition was really keen on making sure there was none of that they have some sort of mind control artifact that turns the city into a perfect dystopia and the artifact itself is not detailed and neither is who or what the perfect is the it was really creepy <laughs> like the mind control thing was really creepy and not in like a fun way in like kind of a gross way and i kind of hope it gets better treatment in one of the upcoming books there's probably a better way to do that than just this one person mind controls the whole city you could steal the mind control stick too
0: there was one other piece to it which is that the populace had to uh at at their coming of age had to accept the mind control or be banished so there is there is some bits to it I, i think you're right that the presentation needs to be better the Lap is a city built on the lap of a giant cross-legged statue carved out of an entire mountain.
1: Dajaz is the new southernmost city on the map. It's a limestone and white granite city of Bacchanalian festivals and a refuge for criminals sustained by the mysterious white-veiled benefactors.
0: Zuatham, it's a mining boom town in the Galata Hills in the center of the southern deserts beset by hordes of monsters like millipedes as river dragons, uh-huh. dart-throwing cacti, hyena-like fire elementals and and leonine fair folk and the miners have disturbed the earth elementals that sing beneath the sands who now plot the city's downfall
1: speaking of adventures, wanted places <laughs> 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 another new location chalan home of the ancient and sorcerously inclined dragon-blooded cadet house Simindor, It is a new port city more fully controlled by the realm than than Kiaroscuro. The Simindor sorcerer princes have a chilly relationship with the Neman satraps, and resistance to both grows as the people of Chalon see the opportunity the interesting times give them to overthrow their tyrants.
2: What interesting or notable historical events have happened in the south?
0: There's the usual. Usurpation, Contagion, Raksha Invasion. Yes, I'm rhyming intentionally.
1: Terry put the opening riff to We Didn't Start the Fire here. Yeah,
2: there there (laughs) needs to be a non copyrighted version called, like, We Didn't Commence the Conflagration for such cases, and we'll (laughs) look into that.
1: Just that, like, guitar sting and then him blowing the dust off of his piano from that one live version. Anyway, yeah.
0: (laughs) Notable Chira current... Ruinous state was actually caused by the Empress turning the realm defense grid on an alliance of dragon blooded rivals known as the Seven Tigers, uh, who were uniting to overthrow her rather than just destruction of the usurpation. That batch of destruction's recent. A few centuries ago, a mortal prophet led the Crusade of Crystal, wielding the Ayat adakthon to lead her cult of the great maker into the wild to wage war against the fair folk which left behind a glittering desert a vast plain where the raksha and their followers and everything else was turned to rocky crystalline statues and then the
2: crusade disappeared how about that
1: nice
2: (laughs) (laughs) compelling and rich what things would draw a circle or a character to the region
1: yeah the south is the second most populous direction so any of your characters could certainly be from there
0: and as we've said in many episodes in the past, while it, this is true in other parts of creation, uh, the South is also a land of great wealth. Uh, so you could come here to get rich.
2: Dumb question. Like in creation, there are dark skinned people everywhere, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes.
1: We, this is not, the South is not the brown direction. <laughs> this, this <laughs> That's not, we didn't do that.
2: I, th- this is me confirming that that was not the case. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it's not the case. There are people of color everywhere, just like in real life.
0: What makes the local economy special? Uh, Fire dust, flame wands, fire pieces. So fire dust is what makes this work. And then flame wands and fire pieces are the blunderbuss equivalent of flamethrowers. Fire dust is made by scraping the dust that the wild storms leave behind off the sands of the far south. And then with some alchemical process, turning it into an accelerant.
2: Uh, Is that just gunpowder?
1: They're literally no. firearms.
0: Okay. No, it is not but, just gunpowder.
1: Yeah, but no, uh, flame pieces do not shoot bullets. They There's no projectile. Fire or projectile. Okay. They shoot fire, literally. Yeah. Like they're like literally a, gout a of flame. A, yeah, they literally are a flamethrower that looks like a like a pirate pistol.
2: Got it. Is it a gout of flame or a bullet of flame or am I it's asking too many questions? Okay, got it.
1: No, you know what, like a real flamethrower looks like, right? Where it's just like a stream.
2: Yeah. I mean, if my cord That's were like longer. That. Okay, got it. Um
1: <laughs> It's like that, except it's like uh, like uh alchemical fire from D D, if it were a powder that you load into a pistol that looks like a pirate owned it and then fired a <laughs> and then fired it like a flamethrower at people you hate.
0: For the audience, Terry is nodding
2: solemnly. Yeah, I like the idea that it only works against people you hate. Like yeah. <laughs> there's a critical moment in the plot where like, do you hate him? No fire the flame piece. <laughs>
1: Oh, no! <laughs> there are also gemstones, precious metals, and other valuable ores.
2: What makes gemstones valuable? And I know in a lot of magical settings like, oh no, you need this big ass ruby to do something. Are are gemstones special in creation? Some of them are, especially in the South. So
0: gem uh, has gem mines beneath it. And some of it's just, like, pulling out rubies and diamonds and all that, which is, are valuable because they are rare and pretty. They also pull out other stranger gems that are influenced by the wild, like stones that let Ooh. you record a dream in the gemstone and then let someone else re-experience it. Or ECL crystals that actually let you um, commit motes into the crystal so you can charge them with essence and use them as essence batteries. Uh, So there are, there's a mix.
1: Gems have value in creation sort of the same way they do in real life in that, like, people assigned value to them. (laughs) Uh,
2: But also that they do some cool essence-y stuff in the same way that a ruby nowadays can be both a store of value and something that is artificially created to make a big-ass laser. Oh
0: yeah, and some of them can trap spirits. And part of it is that this is influenced by the element of fire and the presence of the wild. And so you get weird gemstones too, and you can get like diamond deserts at the edge of the wild, but those diamonds, most of those diamonds will turn into sand as you bring them back into creation. like, there's just all kinds of weird stuff down there.
2: Okay. So if you need to, this is a good place to put a rich deposit of MacGuffinite. Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. The South also has an easily navigable coastline that is close to the trade cities of the realm. So they do a hopping coastal trade. And many of the the, the coastal cities have been a sta- historically stable realm satrapies. So they've long been included in kind of the realm's extended network of tribute and trade. So I'm going to put my historian hat on for a second. One of the things that made trade so booming during the height of the Roman Empire was the way that the grain ships that the Roman Republic paid to to sail from the African coast to Rome, subsidized trade, because the captains would then take those ships and sail them around the long way to do port-to-port trade. You have the same kind of thing going on with the realm with the treasure fleets, which are well-maintained and well-defended to bring tribute to the realm, but I imagine those ships also carry other trade on the way
2: back to make money, because the great houses want to make money. Do we talk about the summer mountains at all? How impassable are those? That's that's kind of what separates the south from the Dreaming Sea region.
0: I believe they're very difficult to, to go through. There's only a, a small number of passes as described in getting to Kamzahar. In terms of further south along the mountain range, I don't know how if there are any, any pa- uh, passes that are further south. Realm traders would almost certainly not care if there were because then you'd have to like travel the western edge of those mountains where the Ascari live who will uh raid you and take your stuff especially if you're from the realm
2: so this furthers the theme that the the southeast the dreaming sea region is kind of disconnected from the rest of creation but the south is very much connected to the uh to to the roman politics what interesting characters or gods live in the south
1: Continuing with things that are slightly problematic in the south, we will discuss Alet, uh, who is the southern god of war. And yes, there is one for each direction. And yes, the one from the west is a shark. Thank you. But he's also the god of cattle, herding, and cattle are and cattle raising are part of Harborhead society, um, which we actually didn't really touch on when we talked about Harborhead. But his cult and the focal point of his religious followers are centered in Harborhead and herding and raising cattle is a big deal there his third edition write-up has a really cool detail uh that he preserves the souls of badass warriors who were devoted to him into tassels on his cloak and then he lends them out as like spirit protectors to people and like that p- his petitioner who's like i'll let send me the spirit of a-, of a badass and he's like here's a tassel here you go and then the-, the-, the ghost of that person possesses them and makes them badass he in previous editions had a, a- sect of devotees called the Brides of Alat, which are still a thing, and as the core grossly continues to stick with, points out that it requires them to be women, first off, and also for them to be virginal, so I will take Written by a Man for a thousand, Alex. (laughs) That being said, a religious order of martial women, married, in air quotes, to a kick-ass war god, is extremely cool, so I kind of hope they get better treatment later, because, like, battle nuns a la the Dora Milaje from Um, black panther is fucking cool as hell yep and we should keep that
0: we mentioned Nasri in the sidereals episode as the chair of the convention of fire uh meaning he manages all official business from the bureau of destiny in the south He is also the figurehead of the independent, uh, in quotation marks, faction of sidereals, which is really the unfaction that rejects the factional politics between the bronze and gold factions. He's particularly focused on potential threats from the wild, and reading between the lines, it sounds like the first
2: age people he came from were destroyed by the Bellarian Crusade. You can't see my Nazaree was right t-shirt, but I have one. Nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Salohin is the general of the 17th legion. Um, he defected with his army from the realm rather than give up his command when the great houses divided the legions. He's gathering forces in the small city Valon on the trade route between Kiaroscuro and Jem. He's been recruiting outcasts and mercenaries to join his army as he prepares. This was a rare second edition character who offers a lot of hooks without answering all the questions. Anyway. Yeah, he's cool.
0: The First and Forsaken Lion is a Deathlord who rules a mountain range fortress called the Thousand in the Underworld of the South. He was the first slain Solar to take the Oath to the Neverborn and become a Deathlord, but also the one who released the Fair Folk into creation, which may have been what let the world survive the Great Contagion. And as punishment, he's been sealed into his suit of armor and banished to his fortress. The fortress doesn't have any sizable shadowlands um, anywhere near it, so there's no routes for him to take his army of hundreds of thousands of war ghosts into creation. He is looking for a way to inflict enough slaughter on the creation side of things to open a path for his ghostly army.
1: Wong Bakarok is a lesser elemental dragon of fire and interim censor of the South, driven to corruption by the frustrations of his temporary office and Heaven's inept handling. His beloved predecessor is still recorded as the office holder after 700 years. Once he strove to excel in his position in the heavenly bureaucracy, and now he's driven to preserve his position and eliminate his enemies. It's rough to be stuck in middle management forever there, buddy.
2: Yeah, that's a little Parks and Rec hitting close to home right there.
0: <laughs> Swan Dragon, uh, the previous censor, was captured by the Fair Folk and driven, to, driven mad, uh, but eventually released to wander the south, usually around the lap. He can be found dispensing uh, wisdom amidst his uh, ramblings.
1: The Seven Storms Brotherhood are outcast dragon-blooded bandit lords who raid the trade routes by Lake Makrata.
0: And there are two Raksha courts in the south. The Passion and Intrigue-obsessed Ruby Court, who only recently relocated to the south from the northeast uh, within the last decade. And the Lapis Court who kidnap humans to keep as pets as they slowly drain around their souls and want to destroy the ruby court utterly now terry i'm going to turn this next question around on you since you are the one who prepares these delightful uh critters for us so what interesting creatures natural or supernatural live in the south
2: so uh first off we have the ifrit the, they are eight foot tall, attractive fire elementals. They're pure human, but with a skin that glows like flames. Proud and honorable, they mostly side with the dragon-blooded during the usurpation, viewed with reverence and respect across the south. And as we talked about in the sorcery episode, they have enough mastery over sorcery to grant that gift to others if they promise to burn shit for them. Do they have to burn shit or did I just make no, that up? No, burning shit's part of the deal. No, I think you're right. Number two, personal boys. I couldn't find a murder tube for this region, but I didn't have a lot of time to check. So just assume that there is some sort of gem and crust murder weasel running around. And if not, in my fan supplement, 100 Mustelids Night Parade, there will be one for the south in there. The next is the Furnace Rhino, who are living refineries that graze the mineral fields of the southern desert. They look like normal rhinos, but this is exalted, so they're effing huge. They have two front horns that steam like smokestacks, radiate searing heat, and they do damage augmented by the magical materials that they refine internally. Their carcasses can be used in crafting if you're able to butcher one before it cools down from being a red-hot cadaver and turns into a mingled lump of slag. I assume that's what was kind of implied that you had to you had to hit it while it was hot otherwise it would just be like oh this is all the stuff at the bottom of the oven no one likes that Um, (laughs) you have the hounds of autochthon which were created by autochthon to herd the furnace rhinos i love what exalted is like we're not going to give you a weird ass creature we're going to give you a weird ass food chain and ecosystem these 10 foot tall dogs were once part of a pack of 25 with five for each Uh, magic material the pack is reduced in size over time but each dog resonates with the power of a magical material from the quicksilver grace of the silver dappled moon dogs to the lion-like golden mastiffs that are the sun dogs Uh, the pack sometimes appears in force to fend off a great foe from the wild or may appear in pairs for smaller tasks but they have been charged with some mission by Autochthon, and only they know so 10 foot tall, magical material-inflected d- dogs carrying out an unknown mission for a sleeping god, that that gets two thumbs up in Terry's book of exalted cool-ass <laughs> shit. I, I had um, totally forgotten about
1: them. They are awesome. I also <laughs> did, too. So, charged with some mission biotic-thon that only they know, unfortunately, they are also dogs, so...
2: They have an intelligence <laughs> of two. So that that suggests that they at least got something going on up up top.
1: It suggests <laughs> they, like... No, to push the button to annoy the human to go out.
2: <laughs> no, that's it's more than that. That was like in D and D where they listed the dolphins had an intelligence of twelve, which suggested the dolphins could learn up to level five spells at the time. I
1: mean, so... <laughs> you don't know the dolphins don't know how to cast level right, spells, right? That, that's true. <laughs> uh,
2: but I also like the idea that Autochthon's, uh last commands were "Be a good boy, stay," um, <laughs> and then like peaced out. And the last one is the sleeper in the sand because every direction has a creature that tries to subvert Dungeons and Dragons in some way. And that was my interpretation of these guys. It's a uh, nine meter tall kind of ape like creature made out of dirt and rock and such that uh, is empowered by the uh, hot sun in the South. They tend to be active during the day and dormant at night, unless you set up a fire on them and they wake up and they specifically say they wake up violently Not angrily, but they're very confused. (laughs) So so, uh, this seems like an awesome thing to drop in to be like, oh, we've set up camp for the evening. The goblins surely can't attack us now like plot twist, um, or when your fire anima character like flares during an argument and suddenly the, the land rises up against them. I also like that there's the cactus snake because the South is like, well, we could have cactuses that just attack you, but Final Fantasy already did that, so we're just going to fill our cactuses with snakes. How about that, fuckers? And that was how I interpreted the cactus snake.
1: The Worm I wrote, which is another Southern creature, which unless the write-up got changed because I didn't look at the released version is a uh, seething mass of psychic centipedes nope which will overwhelm and eat you nope <laughs> <laughs> you
0: do not like centipedes
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i don't either which is why i made them into a terrifying monster nice also i think makahara the volcanic earthwalker, is basically a shadow of a colossus monster uh, that is stomping around the deep south, also from Hunter Devil's Night Parade, which I do know is out. It was one of the first ones that came out, and I wrote that guy too.
2: Awesome. Do the other elementals similarly have like an Efreet version? Oh, yeah. No,
0: and Efreet and okay. are not the only fire elemental to have like an elevated, powerful version. There's also the Garda, the Garda birds, phoenixes, essentially. I forget who else there is for fire elementals, but every element has them. Like there's the Cloud Bears for air.
1: Aren't Garda literally Garda? Like they're from, isn't that from Indian myth? It's spelled
0: Uh, differently, but yes. Okay. Oh,
1: is it? Okay.
2: What's a story that you would like to run in the region?
0: I really like the idea of telling a unite the South story where the PCs need to bring together uh, the various peoples and cultures of the South against a common threat. I I think you could do this in a bunch of different ways. It lets you explore the different cultures and their problems as you try to set things right to kind of be ready for whatever that fight is. So, you could also have some hard choices, like would you court the perfect of Paragon or would you aid the resistance uh, against him? I, I think that any of, you could just, any of a number of antagonists, depending on your interest, uh, whether this is a realm invasion, uh, perhaps a breakaway great house trying to unite the south on, as a new empire, the first and forsaken lion breaking out of the underworld, Salahin creating his own empire in the south, Raksha, you've got some options for, for what you need to unite against. You could also potentially run this as a mixed circle game, which would help you highlight some of the themes of the campaign. So I think this would be a really neat one to run.
1: I love all adventurers wanted locations. Zotham Zoatham, that boom town that is surrounded by monsters. Seems like a great place to get started. Also a great place for a mixed circle. Also like Fortitude, a fantastic place. To introduce people who are familiar with, like, the, the D&D milieu of, like, you go to this place, you fight a bunch of monsters, people pay you for that, or whatever, and then can build from there because there's so much going on in the South. And that seems like a great starting point. Also, to introduce people to all the weird, just just monsters in general. Like, we've, we've talked a fair amount about creatures and gods who are, like, people or useful. And in the South, it's like, no, these are fucking monsters. All of them will eat you. <laughs> like, deal with it sucker. And there are so many excellent choices for things that will be scary but your party can also surmount. The sleeper in the sand is a pain in the ass but is not like a party killer. <laughs> Exalta tends to not, to not do that. Uh, until you get to like really high end stuff like the death Lords of which there is one that seems like a great starting point to introduce people to the setting. Cause there's all kinds of monsters. You're in this really politically charged area. There's a place where you can travel from sun dogs, uh, <laughs> all kinds of stuff and build up to getting the characters progressively more, uh, invested in other things that are happening.
0: That also sounds really cool. Terry, what about you? What has, what are you inspired to do with the South of creation?
2: when i think of like the elemental pole of fire it seems to be unique among the elemental poles for the degree to which it is actively destructive like if you go west you get big oceans that kind of go and waves crush things yeah i get it and if you go north things you've just got these floating mountains and so on but like fire destroys in a way that the other elemental directions doesn't so unlike all the other directions whereas you approach that wilderness and the vestiges of the first age are just kind of lying about the south kind of hides its past in a way that the other directions don't so i very much like the idea that it is the one place where those vestiges can truly be gone yeah we talked about uh Caroscuro and so on but the further out you get the more removed they are so to me this would be a game that would be characters kind of stumbling upon pieces of some great work and no one knows what they're for, and they will never be used again. And they are the, oh, what's the Percy Bysshe Shelley poem, Ozymandias, where it's just kind of very obvious that there was something shattered and gone and it will never be back. And that seems to be somewhat unique across the directions. I I like the, the vastness and spareness and space for reflection that it has. The South seems to be comparatively timeless in that assuming something isn't actively killing you, it's just kind of you in this great desert, and I think that provides a space for different type of stories than most of the other directions in Exalted.
1: Yeah, I dig it. And I'm Thank inclined you. to agree.
2: Cool. Yay! What are we talking about in our next episode? Next episode, we'll be talking about strategic warfare, mass combat, and naval battles. Hooray! And in the meantime, if anyone wants to find out what you're up to, Jazz, where can they do that?
0: Uh, you can find me on Twitter as at Chaz. I am not very good about posting, but I'll post the occasional thing. Uh, you can also hear more exalted content from me on the fall of Jiara on the story told podcast feed. Uh, we are definitely closing in on the end of that campaign. And that's exciting. Uh, I thought I'd, I'd be done uh, by now, but uh, you know how, <laughs> how campaigns tend to get away from you. And how about you, Monica?
1: If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at ZenithSun, and I tweet significantly more than Chaz does. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes I retweet it. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Uh, Sometimes I shouldn't be on Twitter, and I am. If you want to hear more from me talking about game things, you can always listen to Bonus Experience at bxpcast.com. We have just started Season 4. Uh, and the special thing this season is that we are reading small games and talking about them. We have one of those planned coming up. Should be good.
2: And if you would rather not deal with a game that indirectly deals with problematic ideas, but want to deal with a game that poorly directly deals with problematic content, learn more about Mage the Ascension, MageThePodcast.com or at Terry Robinson on Twitter. Thank you for listening to Systematic Understanding of Everything, an Exalted Podcast. Go to exaltcast.com to subscribe, see our show notes or listen to our past episodes. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and Anchor.fm. If you have a question, shoot us an email at questions at exaltcast.com. If you'd like to support our show, please consider using the affiliate links in our show notes to make purchases on DriveThruRPG and thestorytellervault.com. The opening theme is Return of the Solar Exalted, and the closing theme is the sidereal exalted Lesser But Safe from Fanfare for the Chosen by James Simple and is used with permission. In the meantime, exalt strong.